Intellectual Eric prides himself on being a connoisseur of arts and creativity, from gravestones to ballet. I think I'm well-read. I think I'm well-spoken. I think I'm well above average. It is important to me to carry myself in a manner where people are going to say, you know what, he knows what he's doing. Welcome to the Page to Pixel podcast. I am your host, Reed Jolin, and join with me, as always, is my dear friend and good boy, Jeremy Ruck. How are we doing, Jeremy? Oh, I'm the best boy. How are you doing, Reed? I'm doing swell. I really enjoyed our concert that we went to last weekend. I was hoping that we could do it every single night of my life because it was such a good time. I had a wonderful time. I don't know if my body is able to do it every single night. I was still feeling it Monday morning. See, ladies and gentlemen, we're moving into our 30s, hopefully like the most of you that are listening to this. But um, yes, as you get older, doing certain things that involve physical movement gets a little bit trickier. Somewhat related to physical movement, I guess, is our current episode tonight. Great transition, Reed. Is Bloodstained. Great series that um, I've been a huge fan of. Um, So we're going to be focusing today's episode on Bloodstained. And like I said, it is a relatively recent series that's heavily inspired by the Castlevania series, in particular uh, the Castlevania games in the vein of the Metroidvanias, or even more specifically and nerdy, the Igavanias. So my experience with Castlevania, I mean, uh, to kind of put it bluntly, it's probably my favorite franchise of all time, and it will be something that we cover uh, probably in an episode, I would say in the spring of summer of next year, it's something I want to give a lot of time and dedication to, but Bloodstain is really a spiritual successor to some of the latter games in the Castlevania series, particularly Symphony of the Night, which a lot of people consider probably the best Castlevania game, which came out in 1997, and the producer of uh, Symphony of the Night was Koji Igarashi. And Bloodstained is essentially the love child of Koji Igarashi. So we're going to be talking about Bloodstained today. Uh, it involves three games. Uh, despite the fact that it is a relatively new franchise, it's only been around for about five, six years now. Um, it involves three games, and those games are uh, Bloodstained, Curse of the Moon, Bloodstained Ritual of the Night, and Bloodstained, Curse of the Moon 2. So looking at all of those games really briefly to kind of break it down, um, most, of the f- most of them have been developed by Artplay, who were relatively responsible for Ritual of the Night, which is the main game in the series. So when we just say, I think, Jeremy, I think the best way to kind of clarify things as we're talking about it is when we're talking about the main game that you were playing, we'll just call it Ritual. Um, When we talk about the other two, Curse of the Moon, we'll just call it Curse. So Ritual of the Night is like the primary um, spiritual successor to Symphony of the Night, which came out officially in uh, 2019. it was originally scheduled to be come out a few years beforehand, but it did finally release in 2019. And I was a Kickstarter backer for that. Um, and again, I could spend 15 hours talking about my love and admiration for the Castlevania series. But I think we'll just kind of start with Jeremy about um, your experience as I introduced you to uh, Bloodstained. So you want to tell uh, the audience a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, so what was it two months ago? You recommended Bloodstained to me. 
I have not played a side-scrolling platformer since probably uh, Mario and Donkey Kong on the SNES. I had no idea that they've kind of developed into full-blown RPGs with leveling systems and uh, that kind of thing. So I was pleasantly surprised when I picked this up and found out how much depth there was, items, weapons, leveling, you know, hidden collectibles, that sort of thing. Uh, I started playing, I don't remember, what was the one that I'm playing right now? What's the Castlevania I'm playing right now? Um, you've been playing the Castlevania Classic Selection, which is on the Switch and other systems. Uh, yeah, I know that. Uh, I'm thinking of the one for, was it Game Boy Advanced? It wasn't Game Boy Advanced or... of the Night. Uh, yep. It was the first Metrovania-style one that you recommended to me. Oh, uh, Dawn of Sorrow. Yeah, Dawn of Sorrow. So, it's basically very similar to Dawn of Sorrow, at least Bloodstained is. Uh, and I'm liking it a lot. I wouldn't say I was skeptical, because you've never given me a bad recommendation. But I guess I didn't realize that I would fall in love with this style of game as much as I did. And that touches my heart. Yeah, yeah. Like Jeremy was saying, you know, this is something that he wasn't super familiar with kind of going into it. But I think the the one thing that really um, hooked me on this is not only is it a really cool atmosphere and gameplay style that's really cool, but just the idea that you can kind of customize and deck out your characters with different weapons and different abilities, I think is so addicting in a lot of ways because you can play the same game different ways. And I think that's something that you kind of miss in a, like a, a Mario game or a Donkey Kong. You just have to play it, right? But every time you play through Bloodstained or a, Castle, uh, a Metroidvania Castlevania, there's just so many ways you can kind of approach it. And I think that's what's so important and addicting to me. And uh, Dawn of Sorrow, like Jeremy just mentioned, is probably one of my favorite games of all time, if not my favorite game of all time. So needless to say, um, when we're talking about Bloodstained tonight, it's it's really uh, a huge, important thing to me. So looking at Bloodstained, Ritual of the Night, and Curse of the Moon, what it really kind of started off as, um, in about 2015 or so, uh, Koji Igarashi had moved away from Ko um, Konami Games. I'm not sure if it was like a mutual departure or if it was sort of like a you're out of here sort of departure. I don't know that exactly. But Koji Igarashi was really the figurehead for a lot of the late 90s, early 2000s uh, 2D side-scrolling Castlevania games that a lot of people are really uh, fond of. And after a while, things kind of went downhill for Konami. Uh, not only the, the Castlevania series going out of fashion, but also Silent Hill and um, Metal Gear Solid you know, three massive, amazing game series that just kind of went, you know, to the wayside for Konami in, in lieu of other projects. So because of that, Koji, Koji Igarashi went and did other things. Um, but after a while, he got a lot of uh, input to create something new in the vein of Castlevania Symphony of the Night. And eventually what happened is he and his partners were convinced to create a Kickstarter for uh, Bloodstained Ritual of the Night. It wasn't called that then, but, you know, he eventually kind of came on board with the idea of making a spiritual successor uh, to Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Uh, it launched on Kickstarter with the original goal of having uh, $500,000 being the goal to reach. It hit $1.5 on the first day uh, and eventually reached $5.5 million backers. One of the reasons... I, I, sorry, I, did, I did go back and watch that, that Kickstarter video. Um, 
that's a pretty sick video. It's basically every uh, high school goth kid's like dream castle to live in. Just watching watching him roam around in, in a castle and try to sell me a game. Like I would have been I would have been in trouble if I would have seen that video. I'd just been like, shut up and take my money. Right, and I think that was actually a vineyard in California, which is interesting. Oh, really? Yeah, maybe we can go visit someday. Um, Ooh. But uh, Koji Igarashi was inspired by, well, I'm going to say his name wrong, Kenji Inafune, who, who is the Mega Man creator, and his Kickstarter success with Mighty Number no. 9, which did not fare as well as a lot of people uh, wanted it to. But needless to say... Um, Igarashi kind of went through it anyway, and they created this this great Kickstarter campaign, which I was a part of. Um, I was one of the early, like the second that intro video went out, I'm like, yep, I'm, I'm doing it. Um, so I invested in it, and it kind of blew up to this huge, huge, widely successful Kickstarter campaign. Like I said, raising $5.5 million um, with all of these different stretch goals, including like retro mode and stuff like that. So. Um, Igarashi, like I said, was inspired by um, other people that had done spiritual successors outside of their original developer and kind of moved along. Uh, he joined the developer Artplay um, to develop a lot of these games, and they are eventually published, Ritual of the Night at least, was published by 505 Games, which is out of Italy. So these games, um, I'm going to let Jeremy talk a bit about it, um, just kind of breaking down these things as I introduce as I introduced these games. There is Ritual of the Night, which is the primary um, spiritual successor to, to Symphony of the Night. That was the real goal of the Kickstarter. But it was also um, some of the stretch goals were getting Curse of the Moon and Curse of the Moon 2 sort of taken off. Um, so when we talk about these games, we're going to get a little bit more in depth of how they're related. But Ritual of the Night, which Jeremy is going to talk about in just a few minutes, were really the, the goal of this. So, Jeremy, anything else you want to say before we jump into sort of the background of Ritual or the plot of Ritual of the Night? Uh, no, I'm ready to fire away here. Dude, let's do it. I'm just I'm just jazzed. So let's go with Ritual of the Night. All right. Bloodstained Ritual of the Night takes place during England's Industrial Revolution. Feeling their craft was threatened, the Guild of Alchemists devised a sinister plot. They transplanted crystallized demonic energy into human subjects. These shard bearers were then used to summon a demonic army. That the alchemists would set upon the world. This ritual would prove to be fatal to the shard bearers, with the exception of two, Gable, who mysteriously survived, and Miram, who was rendered comatose before the ritual for an unknown reason. After many a hard-fought battle, the church succeeds in sending the demons back into the underworld. The realm of man would be safe once again, for now. A decade later, demons and a mysterious castle appear. It is on this day of demonic reckoning that Miriam awakens from her coma. By her side, Johannes, the only alchemist to protest his order's dark actions. He has been monitoring her coma and has been able to predict the day of her return. The duo promptly board a ship to Arvenville, hell-bent on facing the demonic army and unearthing the castle's hidden secrets. The ship is attacked on the shores of Arvenville. While fighting the demons, Miriam discovers she is able to absorb their, her fallen foe's power. Though this will come at a cost. The demonic crystals implanted in the shard bearers cause them to slowly crystallize and absorbing demonic energy will only hasten the process. Miram fights her way through the ship until she confronts her old friend Jeevil, accompanied by a demon known as Gremory. He desires vengeance for what has been done to him. When he realizes Miram will not join his cause, they depart, leaving Miram to face her fate fighting a massive demonic sea creature. 
Miriam and Johannes arrive at the city of Ardentville, finding it in ruin. They encounter an exorcist named Dominique. After setting up base of operations, Miriam begins exploring the castle. While exploring the hellhold, Miriam encounters Alfred, a surviving alchemist and former mentor to Johannes. Alfred seeks a book used by Gable to summon the demons known as the Liber Logath. Threatening to kill Miriam if she interferes with his plans, Miriam also meets a demon slayer known as Zengetsu. His eternal hatred for demon spawn often puts him at odds with Miriam as she adventures through the castle. As she searches for the demon named Gremory, the pair will eventually form a tentative alliance as Miriam is able to prove she is not corrupted by her demonic powers. With many a fallen foe at her feet, Miriam enters the throne room for her final confrontation with Gable. Miriam tries to reason with him, reminding him that during their transformation into a shardbinder, he taught her to never give up on hope for humanity. Her words fall on deaf ears as the pair begin for battle. Miriam upholds her promise to slay Gable if the Shardbearer power were to ever corrupt him. Upon his defeat, Gable regains his old self, thanking Miriam before he dies. Miriam and Johannes reconvene in Ardenville, the bittersweet work complete, leaving the castle and the remaining demons to the church's exorcist. And that is the end of Ritual of, of the Night. It's a, or is, is it? it? You see, Ritual of the Night has a secret hidden ending that is only attainable after beating the bloodless boss. Miriam will then gain the ability to drain the blood of her foes, and by backtracking to the beginning of the castle, she can absorb all of the blood from a blood fountain and unlock a secret basement of the castle. Isn't that nifty, Reed? I mean, I, I, I do that every Tuesday, so it's not really a huge surprise to me, but continue. H hang out in secret basements or absorb blood fountains? Little of this, little of that. Alright. While exploring the underbelly of the castle, Miriam will encounter Alfred again. After a brief battle, Alfred flees to continue his hunt for the Liber Logoth. Miriam also meets with Zengatsu for their final fight. After she bests him, he gives her his sword, Zengatsuto. Citing it as the reason Gremory is too frightened to attack him openly. With Zangatsuto equipped in the final battle with Gable, Miriam is able to reveal Gremory and sever its influence on Gable. When this is done, he apologizes to Miriam before turning into Crystal. Gremory escapes as Alfred arrives to steal the Liber Logauth. Miriam chases the two through a dimensional portal where she finds Alfred mortally wounded and the book missing. Alfred tells Miriam he was trying to use the book as part of a spell to destroy the castle and that it was him who put Miriam in her coma to sabotage the guild's demonic summoning. Miriam reunites with Zengatsu, and the pair devise a plan to draw up Gremory using Zengatsu as bait, knowing she no longer fears the disarmed Zengatsu. At the final battle, Zengatsu is able to hold Gremory in place long enough for Miriam to arrive, before being sent to hell by one of Gremory's portals. Miriam is left to face the demon alone, and after besting her, encounters Dominique carrying the Liber Logath. Dominique reveals that she has turned herself into a Shardbearer, and will use the book to summon Baal, King of Demons. She has become jaded with God for allowing the demons summoning ten years ago, and seeks to destroy God as punishment for his inaction. The pair battle before Miriam can land the final blow, Dominique opens a portal summoning Baal. Miriam must now fight the King of Demons before he is able to manifest fully. 
Miram enters the portal with the massive three-headed beast, fighting him upon its many backs. With Baal defeated, Miram exits the portal and returns to the castle, where she reunites with Johannes. He has found the Libra Lugauth and has figured out how to destroy the castle. With peace restored to the land, Miram mourns her fallen comrades and wonders if the world will ever be free of the demonic scourge. Johannes consoles her by explaining that he may be able to use the Libra Lugauth to stop the crystals from consuming her. As the pair departs, the camera pans, and you can see Zingatsu, who managed to escape hell watching them leave the city. And that is the true ending of Bloodstained, Ritual of the Night. Assuming you played on ultra-wide, which is the only way you can see Zingatsu. And I just want to say that the, these uh, Cradle of Filth concept albums are getting really, really <laughs> complex. <laughs> because the entire the entire time you're reading this, I'm like, man, this is a really amazing uh, hot topic fanfic. <laughs> I mean, even you know, even as <laughs> even <laughs> even even as we're like going through these things, like, yeah, this is a game we love, but it's like you know, it is very um, I don't know what I'm, what's the word I'm looking for here. It's very I don't, I wouldn't I don't say, say edgy, it. but just like it ha- it's like yeah. it's like the first time a, a middle school kid discovers that like witchcraft is a thing, right? They, they just kind of go with it, and like that's fine, that's fine, you know. And I think a lot of this stuff is a lot cooler when you're playing it versus when you say it, and, I, and that's something I'm discovering when we're whenever we're doing like a game series and we're reading the plot. I think that is one thing that is really lost on us is just like the way plot is supposed to kind of come across and might not necessarily reflect the direct nature of the action of the game because you know jeremy's reading through this this plot point and it's not always indicative of what you're doing from time to time and you know for most of this game you know jeremy says oh they defeat all these bosses there's a lot of in between before you get into a lot of these plot points it's it's hours before you fight Zengetsu. It's hours before you fight Grimmery. So, um... Yeah, I just didn't want to bore everyone with the details of every minor, um, minor demon that is destroyed, but you can tell there is a lot of work between not just the bosses, but all of the different enemies encountered in this game. From tiny little annoying poisonous frogs that seem to be more deadly than massive pit fiends just because they're hard to hit, uh, they put a lot of work and love into the mechanics of how all these different enemies function and, and they attack. Um, all the way to even the bosses where they each kind of have their own unique play styles and fights. It's, it's, there's still a lot to this game other than the plot that I've you know distilled into five minutes of talking. And looking at the mechanics of Bloodstained and other Metroidvanias is when you're playing through the game... There is a big emphasis on freeform action and exploration, but in certain regards, there's a lot of times where you need to find and beat a boss to get a certain upgrade to move forward. So it is a freeform game in a lot of ways, but there are certain points where you absolutely need to beat a boss to gain a shard or whatever else it is, a weapon, to sort of advance into the next area. So that is something to keep in mind if you've never played a Castlevania, uh, sorry, a Metroidvania or a game of the like, is that there is this free-forming action, but it is also really important to kind of beat the boss to kind of move forward. Yeah, like uh, I actually I accidentally stumbled into Gable's. Um, is it Gable or Jable? 
I know I've, I, I think, think I said it's... it both, but I'm going to say it how I feel like it in the moment. So, uh, Gable's throne room before I fought the, the bloodless boss and I killed him and I clearly knew it wasn't the right ending, but I was just sitting here scratching my head like, huh, okay, well, now what do I, I do? I think this game was really set up, uh, Ritual of the Night was really set up for fans of the existing game, like having a background knowledge of the Metroidvanias. Approaching this game as sort of a newcomer, I can imagine being relatively difficult because there are certain mechanics and sort of like, I don't know, um, nudges towards, okay, this is where you're heading, but maybe you should backtrack to this other area where you can now access it because you have X weapon or Y shard. So I think it's an excellent game, but it's not 100% user-friendly for newcomers. But I imagine most people that were kickstarting it, like myself, kind of knew that, like that wink, wink, nod, nod sort of aspect to it. Yeah, I mean, playing it with you, um, watching and, and kind of giving me some hints right away definitely helped. But I would n not let that deter you from looking into the game, though, because I think if I didn't have Reed just kind of, you know, holding hands with me through that beginning part, I would have figured it out eventually. It just would have took a little bit longer. Maybe like second playthrough would have been where it was all all clicking but still definitely a very very good game uh i didn't play it on i think i played it on the second difficulty i think and like it was still okay you know some of the boss's mechanics were rough and you forget to use some abilities unless someone tells you to but it all it all comes together at the end and as i mentioned with the at the beginning of the episode it's just like you need to try different options and you need to try different weapons and different shards, which we'll talk about in a second to sort of get through certain areas. So it, it is very linear in a certain aspect, but the way you approach it can be very different depending on your play style. Um, and let's talk a little bit about the shard system. Um, looking at this game versus the previous Castlevanias, obviously because of legal reasons, they couldn't have this be a quote unquote Castlevania game but it is absolutely 100% inspired by the Castlevania games. Um, first and foremost, it does have a very strong gothic horror, gothic noir vibe almost. It takes place in, I wanna say the 18th century, like the middle 1700s. It does have a lot of influence of industrial revolution and Renaissance to it. All the while, a lot of the original Castlevania games were more focused on the late medieval times. So with this game, it, it, it takes a lot of inspiration from those Castlevania games, but it does kind of push it a little bit into the future. So you can have guns and you can have a little bit more um, modernized weaponry and, and stuff like that. So the major thing here is just like with some of the other Metroidvanias, Castlevanias in particular, there is a big focus on shard, the shard system, which is a large portion of the gameplay mechanics. So depending on what enemy you kill, um, they have certain drop rates on what are called shards. And there's a pretty cool animation anytime you kill an enemy that drops a shard, it kind of floats around the room and then just kind of stabs you in the gut, stabs Miriam in the gut. And yeah, it gives you say you, cool, I say brutal and metal. It is pretty metal. Um, it stabs Miriam in the gut and you absorb that power. So every single enemy in the game drops a, a shard. Um, I was about to say soul, but that's uh, that's Aria of Sorrow and Dawn of Sorrow. 
So they more or less took the soul system from Aria of Sorrow and Dawn of Sorrow and kind of put it into this game, but they call it Shards instead. And the, the whole idea of it is that there's different categories of shards. Some are offensive, some are manipulative where you can kind of move your hand in different directions and depending on the direction you have, um, it'll cast a different spell. There are passive abilities and all these different things. So you are a character, everyone plays the same character, but depending on how you want to play it, there's a lot of different opportunities for players to sort of explore and do different actions in the game. And I think that's one of the reasons, like I said before, uh, that makes these games so addicting is that you, you and what's nice too is you can, you can upgrade those abilities. So let's say you kill a single enemy, I don't know, 50 times and you get their soul 12 times, you can upgrade that ability using materials um, to make it more powerful, to increase the area of effect and other stuff like that. So this is a game that is really heavily inspired by past games, but it also takes a modern approach to crafting and building um, on your character. And it's just, it, it honestly, like I could talk for hours on this. It's just a lot of fun. I'm going to let you talk for a second. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And on top of all of the other really like the gameplay elements, the artwork on this game is just on point. Um, really, really cool level design. Very diverse levels as well. When you get into a different zone, it's it's very each zone is very unique. Uh, there's a really cool spire that you end up going up and down and battling a really neat boss on. That that I that was probably one of my favorite boss fights personally. Uh, and as well as detail on the characters. So if you missed it, the 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 soul or the shard binding thing slowly crystallizes the the shard bearer and so if you look at Miriam's character art at first when I was loading up the game I thought they were just tattoos but then it just dawned on me that oh no that's where she's being crystallized and it looks almost like as a kind of a play on like the gothicness it looks like some stain almost stained glass is kind of forming on her and then like alchemical markings around there like holding it back so there's a lot of attention to detail in this artwork as well yeah and that was actually done on purpose because it's supposed to be sort of the name of the series is bloodstained and it's supposed to sort of invoke this idea of the importance of blood but also like you know stained glass windows that sort of right. appear on the body so it is kind of a i don't know it's a play on words in a way no i i really liked it the only thing that I thought would have been neat when I kind of read the background was if they would have maybe incorporated like the slow and crouchingness of the crystals onto your character. But that was just like a personal thing. I was kind of hoping to see just maybe as she, maybe if you played too long, you got various endings or she would just kind of maybe end up dying from the crystals. Cause I think, was it the second case? Yeah. Can't talk the second Castlevania that you were on some sort of timer or something like that. And based on how fast you beat the game, it could be, different I endings. mean, I think it's the curse. I think it's the curse one. Uh, was it, you mean blood sand or Castlevania Castlevania where, um, cause it wasn't, isn't the second Castlevania where the Belmont is cursed by Dracula and you have to like beat the game in, in such, in like various time frames to get different endings. It, that absolutely could be, uh, Castlevania to Simon's quest is, really a polarizing game in a lot of ways if you're not familiar with it um 
Yeah, that's that, that very well it could be. A lot of these Castlevania games, like the Sonic the Hedgehog games that we've covered before, have a variety of endings depending on the circumstances, which is something I'll talk about with uh, the Curse of the Curse of the Moon uh, pretty soon. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the characters here. Um, so with all of these games, Ritual of the Night and Curse of the Moon, it I'm gonna pause does... it real quick. Yes, okay. I, ju I just I just asked Google, and yes, there are three endings based on how long how many in-game days it takes you to beat. And that's and that's Castlevania too. Yes, uh, Simon's was, Quest. Yeah, yeah, and that was released what like 1987. Yeah, I mean I don't I it's definitely not something that it, uh, uh, Iggy would have been a, a part of. I just thought it would I, I thought it was gonna be a thing in there just because it seemed kind of obvious to me. But hey, man, I mean, that no, that's really cool that. These games, they do have a very straightforward function in a lot of ways, but they also allow for a lot of nuance and difference of play styles with it, like we've kind of mentioned before. But looking at the characters, let's kind of talk a little bit about the characters that kind of are prevalent in uh, the Bloodstained series. First of all, let's talk about Miriam. And I think Miriam, as according to Koji Igarashi, said that there's this mainstream notion, especially in the last couple of years, of having a positive female role model in a lot of games. And I think a lot of people maybe see Miriam as kind of a waifu, but I think she's equally very um, docile, but also very badass in a lot of ways. You know, she has all of these cool abilities, but she's also given this really tough fate that she kind of has to follow through with. So for me, Miriam is just a, it's just a really cool character. It reminds me a lot of Shinoa from Castlevania Order of Ecclesia. She's gonna give in this role, and she's a real she's real tough on that, and she kind of has to follow through with that. And she's the primary protagonist um, through most of these games. Zengetsu, which we'll talk about, I'm sure next, uh, he kind of doubles as a protagonist and an antagonist early on. But I really do like Miriam's character style and the the fact that you can sort of customize all of her clothing and her hairstyles and stuff like that. I just think Miriam's a cool character overall. What do you think, Jeremy? No, I agree. I I guess I don't see the waifuness of her. She comes off as, I mean, she never comes off as a damsel in distress. Just kind of, I get the feeling of she's a very self-sacrificing individual in the, in the way that, you know, she has, you could say a curse, right? You know, she, something bad happened to her, but she's still trying to make it a positive thing. You know, she could be using her powers negatively like Jebel is, but she chooses to forgive the people that have wronged her and try to make the world a better place, kick the demons out, that sort of thing. So no, I think she's a very strong character. Yeah, I, I, I agree for sure. Uh, looking at Zengetsu, Zengetsu is a uh, character that's in not only the main game Ritual of the Night, but also the Curse of the Moon characters. Uh, he's typically referred to as someone that's from Japan, and he is voiced by the amazing David Hayter, who is the uh, original voice of Solid Snake. And he has he's just like this pure anime protagonist. He has this cool samurai sword, um, and he's really pissed off against demons and he wants nothing to do with them and he's just really on a mission to kind of destroy all demons in his way which is really a point and uh consideration for the curse of the moon series that we'll talk about in a minute but what do you think about zengetsu 
I was a little confused at first, um, but like I, I slowly came to like him because he was more just annoying because I had to fight him, uh, and he was tough. But I, I liked him, and then I guess he hits. I, I think what happens, which I kind of missed at first, was he probably genuinely wanted to kill Miriam right away, and then slowly as they fight. Because they encounter each other, what is it, three or four times in the game? Yeah, I want something like that, yeah. And I think what happens is, as they slowly fight, he, he starts to realize maybe his just raw hatred for anything demonic-related isn't fully justified. So there's this kind of background character growth that happens where he actually trusts her with his sword and is willing to accept her help because he knows he can't take Gremory alone. I I just did, I guess I didn't think that was his plan the whole time. I think that was just some background character development that happened. I don't know if they, you feel the same. Yeah, I, I would agree too. Um, I, I think he's a cool character, and he again, he's a very anime character. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Yeah, and he's cool to play with, and he he he's like the the primary figure of Curse of the Moon, which is. It's kind of a spin-off, and it's kind of related. We'll talk about that as we get into it. How about Gebel or Giebel or however you want to pronounce it? So Giebel is... He's really like the primary antagonist in Ritual of the Night. He is a playable character in Curse of the Moon and Curse of the Moon 2. Um, he's r related to Miriam in the sense that he's kind of a peer to Miriam. But as a Shardbringer or Shardbreaker or whatever it's called, he wants to sort of... I don't know... He's 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 mad at like the world because of what happened to him. Sure. And I think that's so he is essentially the I would say maybe the fall from grace story here because from the looks of it when they were going through that the process of becoming shard binders read is what they're called. Sorry. Yeah, I definitely said that right every time too, don't worry. Uh, it seems like Miriam had sort of a a breakdown, and, and he was able to help her through that and work through those feelings to not just hate humanity as a whole for putting her through that. But then, inevitably, he turns to falling to the bad side. So it's just kind of, I would say, maybe the inverse, where he helps her forgive, but then he realizes that he can't. He can't take his own advice. So what it breaks down to is both of them were sort of subject to the same experiences, but Miriam sort of realizes that it was a mistake and wants to even save humanity despite all of the pain that's done to her, while Giebel is more like, you know, I was I was screwed over by humanity, so it's time to destroy it with the power of these demons. Yeah, that's what I've got from kind of looking at this, looking at re-looking at my notes here of what I just read. And Alfred, I believe, is there teacher he um he's johannes's teacher sorry he's johannes's teacher I, not I, johannes I, johannes i thought i was the fan but apparently jeremy's taken over here um but yes he's johannes's teacher he's an alchemist and he does serve as an antagonist in the primary game but also as a protagonist in the curse of the moon games so i i, I don't know there's just so many characters here there's there's dominique do you want to talk about dominique and her um gifts on the front of her chest uh, those two giant gifts? The two giant gifts, yes. Uh, one second, let me just... Yep, okay, so we're talking about the same pair of gifts. 
Yeah, she's the she's the one that's at like the 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 base initially, but she turns out to be pretty bad. Yeah. So let's talk about Dominique, Jeremy. Go ahead. So she is the secret bad guy of the whole thing, basically. Um, she is an exorcist for the church. Who, again, maybe another fall from grace story as well. I think it's just another jaded person who maybe had sort of a crisis of faith and couldn't couldn't cope with the fact that the like her god would not step in and save the world from what what was happening to it so she has decided that she's kind of an angsty teen really she's just like i'm mad at mom and dad so just let the whole world burn yeah i mean there's there's probably more to her but i think that really gonna summarize things with dominique she's just she starts off as an exorcist by the church. She's a friend of Johannes. And when you're in the uh, early stages of the game, when you can sort of port back to the early um, home zone for the characters, you know, she, she, she sort of helps you out. But after it's all to get the Liber Lugath. Yeah, she does ultimately turn evil. Spoiler alert. And you do have to kind of fight her and what she sort of spawns. I just so, read the whole plot. I'm pretty sure it's all been spoiled. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, again, if you haven't played these games and you're relatively interested, all five people that are listening to this, please give it a shot. It's a really good game. Um, let's talk a little bit about how... We, we talked about this earlier, but how this kind of departs from Castlevania is just how a lot of these same tropes kind of follow themselves through um, the, the Egovanias. And how there is this character that's kind of forced into this role of being the hero, despite their own hesitance. And they're sort of surrounded by characters that are either positively or negatively influencing them. And I think that's an interesting attribute for a lot of these games is just how you think someone's on your side for a while, but all of a sudden they kind of they kind of turn face and uh, they turn heel, sorry, and they kind of go their own way and do their own thing. And this is a really good example of that. So that's one of the things that I was so... In, you know, I, I guess I was enjoying about these games was just how familiar it felt um, kind of coming away from the Castlevania games. It, I, I, is this a perfect game? Absolutely not. There are some very janky points in this game, but looking as a spiritual successor to an amazing um, influential franchise, yes, it's a really good example of that. Um, looking at a lot of the sort of side details of this, we mentioned Koji Igarashi, the original creator, producer, main main head of a lot of the Igavanias. He created these games, but he also brought on some friends. He brought on the original uh, voice actor of Alucard um, from Symphony of the Night to play a boss in Bloodstained. He brought David Hayter of Solid Snake fame to play Zengetsu, one of the antagonist protagonists and he brought um Michiro Yamane who did a lot of the early um Castlevania music for the Igavanias such as uh, Symphony of the Night and so on um apparently after they they had gotten drunk together they had um they they came together to uh talk about the game and Igarashi got Yamane really drunk so she's like okay I'll do music for you guys so I think this is just a really it's the same str- way you got me on the podcast. That that's not wrong. <laughs> I just I just think it's a really great um, labor of love. I think is what I'm trying to get at. 
you know, I can talk about all the significant details, but what I'm saying is, and we'll probably talk a little bit at this at the end about this, but this game is a true labor of love, um, not only for this series, but just the just like the gameplay style, the the genre as a whole. Um, and I, I just think it's excellent. You know, as as a fan of Castlevania for the last thirty years, this is I, I absolutely love this game. And um, we'll talk now about Curse of the Moon, unless Jeremy has anything else to add. No, I, I guess I would just say one thing I really liked about this game in particular was Castlevania, as amazing as I'm sure it is, is a lot to jump into. I mean, there's how many games, there's a lot of lore you don't know about. So this I felt really comfortable playing because I was able to get a similar experience but I didn't also feel like I was missing out on 30 years worth of backstory and knowing what's going on and that sort of thing. So that's what really kind of pulled me into this is I didn't feel very confused. It, it, it was just a really good game, very approachable to someone that hasn't played Castlevania. I would absolutely agree. And before we transition into the spinoff games Curse of the Moon, I think it'd be a good time to kind of talk about a little bit of the background of the environment of the games, specifically the enemies and stuff like that. We had mentioned that the game is focused more in the Industrial Revolution in the 1700s in comparison to a lot of the Castlevania games, which are more focused in the medieval era. What's cool about these games and a lot of the actual Metroidvania games is a lot of the lore and enemies are based specifically on like folklore and demons and stuff like that. I'll be honest, a lot of my personal... Uh, I guess you could say interest in folklore and demonology kind of came from the Castlevania games because I'm playing the games and I see these really cool enemies and I don't know what they're all about. So when you defeat one, it will give you their name and you bring that up and you kind of go on and Google the name of the enemy. And you're like, oh, that's actually a demon from this certain Grimoire. So you kind of look it up. So I think what's so cool about these games, including Bloodstained and the Castlevania games, is just beating the enemies in this environment that uh, you you might not otherwise be familiar with. So, Jeremy, when you're playing Bloodstained and you're kind of killing these enemies, what did you kind of think? Uh, I really enjoyed the diversity in enemies. So, as you can obviously probably infer, there's a lot of various sorts of demons you encounter. But there's also some kind of fairies. There's really mundane things like toads, stuff like that. Ninjas make an appearance. Uh, but the thing I really thought was neat, um, which I think showed a lot of appreciation to the the people that helped make this game possible, you know, the fans that funded, there was the, the I think they're the poltergeist, the little paintings. Oh, and yeah, the portraits, uh, yeah. And apparently those are pictures of the fans that were put into the game. Yep, yeah, that, I thought that was really cool too, like the the, uh, the poltergeist paintings that would follow you around, yeah. Yeah, I think that I think that's really awesome to just kind of show some appreciation to the people that helped make this game possible. And there were a couple other goofy ones. There's like the 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 cats with the horns that just kick the crap out of you. Those were fun, and the, the little like massive dog heads that come at you. Yeah, there's just so many cool like interplays of different mythologies and stuff like that that come around. I would say, you know, as a veteran fan of the Igavania games. This does bring in a lot more eccentricism. Is that a word? Like eccentricness to it is to now. the game. It is now. Um, with with a lot of the other games, it really does kind of stick into either gothic horror or like Norse or Germanic mythology or Christian mythology. 
with this game, it's like all over the place. Some of it's kind of tongue in cheek, um, which I, which I'm fine with. It's just with the Metroidvanias, the Egovanias, there's a lot more focus on particular pantheons of enemies, you could say. Yeah. Uh, that that you could research. Uh, this game is it it like I said, it's more tongue in cheek. It's more fun, uh, especially where the enemies are placed in this game versus other ones where it's a little bit more structured and fitting for them to be so that is one go ahead sorry i was just gonna say i really enjoyed um the design of a couple of them too because they they like when you're talking about more of the like christian based mythos creatures i feel like they took instead of just taking like oh let's just make this a generic monster it seems like they just took the exact description was that the uh it's the i'm looking at it now it's called the boar Oh, it's yeah. basically a lion head with just like seven legs in a circle around it, like, and it just rolls around at you. It's just this when you're just reading some of those old old things and they're describing like an angel is just wings with eyes, just like this really weird stuff that doesn't really make sense because it doesn't really have a physical form. And then they find a way to put that onto the game. It's really neat to see something that's just weird as heck, but still kind of a pain in the butt. And, and that example in particular, the boor, that is a enemy that you fight in a lot of the uh, Castlevania games. Mm. So they kind of brought it into this game. So there are quite a few enemies that do sort of do sort of like reoccur within okay. Bloodstained, despite the fact that it is. I mean, obviously you can't copyright something that was written 500 years ago. Oh, um, I'm gonna do it. You can try. Good luck. But uh, just kind of talking about these games, they do bring a lot of the Castlevania, but they do also have kind of their own flavor with it, too. And I think that's what's, that's what's so cool about this game is it does have a lot of those influences of Castlevania, the medieval uh, grimoires and, and enemies and stuff like that. But it also does bring in sort of its own flavor to it. So it's not just a carbon copy of Castlevania is what I'm saying. It does have its own flavors. And like we're, we're about to talk with, with the Curse of the Moon spinoff games, it opens up the realm for this to be a full-on franchise. So that being said, let's talk about Curse of the Moon. So leading up to Castlevania, uh, sorry, <laughs> Bloodstained Ritual of the Night, there was the release of Curse of the Bloodstained Curse of the Moon, which is an 8-bit style spinoff of the series. Which is interesting because typically when you have a Kickstarter game and they release a title for it, 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 it usually just is a standalone thing for a while. But even within this new franchise that's only started in the last few years, they've come up with spin-off games for this franchise, including Curse of the Moon and Curse of the Moon 2. So with Curse of the Moon and Curse of the Moon 2, there's a lot of speculation about where these games fit in with the larger scope and scale of the Bloodstained series because the characters that are involved with Curse of the Moon aren't necessarily in the same timeline as Ritual of the Night. Just to kind of give you a breakdown, how the first Curse of the Moon game, which I have played through, kind of plays, it plays very similarly to Castlevania 3 on NES where you play as a certain character and as you move through the levels, you find other characters and you recruit them to your party. Exact same thing with Curse of the Moon, you do the same thing or you don't because unlike Castlevania, uh, in Curse of the Moon, you can move up to these characters and kill them, which I didn't know when I was playing through it. But the main characters in Curse of the Moon 1 are Zengetsu, Miriam, Alfred, and Giebel. 
which are very, very major characters in Ritual of the Night. It's really hard to say where this fits in in the larger plot, because you'd assume that a lot of the focus is going to be on Ritual of the Night, and you're going to base everything off of it. But how Curse of the Moon plays is that Zengetsu is the primary protagonist in the game, and he has given, he's been given the Curse of the Moon. He has this um, grudge against demonic creatures. So he has this notion that he has to go and fight this uh, archdemon called Gremory, which you do fight in Ritual of the Night. And what you do as you're moving through the levels is you find someone who's endowed with crystal powers named Miriam, also in Ritual of the Night. And you also meet Alfred, who is the skilled alchemist. You also finally meet Gebel, who is this trickster. So just like with Castlevania 3, you meet these other characters. In Curse of the Moon, you, 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 you meet and join up forces with these other primary antagonists and antagonists in the main game. But it does not clearly state if Curse of the Moon is a prequel or sequel or whatever it is. And how the game works is as it does have multiple endings as you're playing through the game, depending on how many characters you sort of interacted with as you're playing as Zengetsu, Miriam, Alfred, and Giebel, depending on which characters you were recruited or killed, there are different endings. Because um, the major boss, if you're playing the positive ending, is Gremory, which is a boss in Ritual of the Night. If you beat them, um, depending on your interactions with the other members, Zengetsu can get possessed by the evil spirit, and you do have to play through the game as Miriam, Alfred, and Gebel to defeat Zengetsu. So what I'm trying to get at with all of this sort of complex explaining is that I think these games open up this idea that there is a larger ability for the series to kind of go in different directions. Um, it opens up the possibility that there's different timelines available because even within the bosses themselves, they manipulate space and time, which allows different timelines to sort of open up a lot like the early Castlevania games. I don't think this was a, um, what am I trying to say? I don't think this is a unintentional consequence. I think this was done intentionally just to kind of build when they're building this franchise of bloodstain they're building it to think okay we want to build this franchise if we have these side games that have different storylines that arc in these different directions we can build a new game based on one of these other directions so i think it's very clever in a lot of ways uh especially within this sort of 8-bit inspired game like curse of the moon and curse of the moon 2 which i'll talk about in a second they allow for different opportunities depending on how you interact with the characters in the game, which is, I think, I, I honestly, I just think it's brilliant. So, uh, any thoughts on that, Jeremy, before I jump into Curse of the Moon 2? Uh, I just agree with you. Bringing in the ability to kind of have branching stories that, um, I, I just did a little bit of research into it, but from kind of what I get is there, like you said, there's multiple timelines and Gremory might be able to sort of open portals to different timelines. So I'm guessing if they expand this into a little bit larger series, Gremory is going to be a recurring villain that is able to just kind of mess with time and the fabric of reality. And it gives them the ability to make sort of different games with different storylines where other people can be the main protagonist and you don't have to necessarily be concerned with everything 
connecting back to the original game. It just opens them up to having a little bit more availability to do whatever they want with the series. I, I think that's really the goal is a lot of people are focused primarily on Ritual of the Night, which has Miriam as the primary character, but they're offering these sort of side stories, you know, to, to quote last podcast on the left, the side stories of uh, of different games and different opportunities. So looking at Curse of the Moon 2, as we're kind of jumping ahead here kind of quickly, um, it, it, it sort of has its own continuity outside of Ritual of the Night. Uh, Zengetsu, again, in Curse of the Night 2, is the primary protagonist of the game. Um, it takes place after Curse of the Moon. So Curse of the Moon 1 and 2 kind of have their own continuity and their own timeline aside from Ritual of the Night. Whether it's a prequel or a sequel, hard to say. I would probably guess, based on my research into the plot lines of these games, that the Curse of the Moon series, which are like, again, the 8-bit series, are more or less a prequel of, this, uh, of uh, Ritual of the Night. Anyway, Curse of the Moon 2 takes place uh, as a sequel to Curse of the Moon. Zengetsu is kind of following along, and he sees this tower being summoned to, um, I don't know, create this great force, right? It's, it's summoning a castle, this demonic castle. So Zengetsu teams up with Dominique, who again, we've talked about a little before, who's an exorcist of the church and realizes that this tower is summoning a castle. So uh, she sends Zengetsu to kind of stop this invasion. And in the process of doing this, uh, Zengetsu teams up with Dominique and along the way, Zengetsu and Dominique team up with Robert, who is this kind of like ranged character. He has like a rifle, I believe. And then Hachi, who is a corgi who is piloting a steampunk mech. And if we've said anything this entire podcast episode that sold you on it, if I say corgi piloting a steampunk mech and that doesn't sell you, just just click close this episode at this point. Yeah, unsubscribe. Right. As it's going on, they are working together to kind of defeat the final boss. Um, as it's trying to destroy the party, it's stopped by Dominique, who becomes possessed by this evil spirit. So perhaps this correlates to the story in Ritual of the Night where Dominique, spoiler alert, gets possessed by the spirit to sort of um, take over and, and destroy humanity. So it's really difficult to say with Curse of the Moon 1 and 2 if it's a separate thing altogether or if it is related in its own sort of side stories. I just came up with this little like idea. What if the... Like the split in the timelines and various like outcomes are just based on the good and bad endings of each game. So like if you have the good curse of the moon ending, maybe that leads into ritual of the night where if you have the bad curse of the moon, where Zengatsu actually gets possessed by the evil spirit, he like, it moves into that game. That was just an interesting idea I had. It was because so many games have various endings. And then when you play the second game, it's just like, this is just assuming the good ending happened, where this series might be building towards just this huge web of just like, this, if you follow this timeline, this is what's canon, but if this is what's followed, this is canon. Just an idea I kind of came up no, with. No, I, I think you're onto something there. And like I said, this is a brand new series that's only been out for the last few years. And they have these spin-offs, Curse of the Moon, and having the ability to kind of split off depending on the ending. Sorry if I didn't mention it, but depending on how you beat Curse of the Moon and Curse of the Moon 2, there are 
many, many different endings that I'm not going to get into in this episode. Because I, you know, unlike Sonic the Hedgehog, I don't want to spoil the endings depending on what you do. Because this is a game that came out just over a, a, a year ago or not, uh, Curse of the Moon 2 at least. So I don't want to exactly spoil things, but there are different endings depending on how you play it. So I think moving forward with the franchise, uh, if you if I haven't not told you this, Jeremy, we can get it live on recording, but they have announced that they are making a sequel to Ritual of the Night. So, I did see that, and I was just going to contain my excitement. So this isn't something where it's like Mighty Number no. Nine. <laughs> That's gonna come. <laughs> the mediocre Number Nine. Yeah, yeah, mediocre. I'm, I'm coming in hot. Hot takes coming of Jeremy. Sorry, sorry, Inafune. Um, the Mega Man games are okay without you. Sorry, um, but I think what's so important about this is just how great Koji Igarashi has been to the whole of the Castlevania and Bloodstained series. And are these games perfect? Absolutely not. But I will say that I think they are a very positive example of how. Kickstarters can be done to create something that is equally inspired by what came before, but also kind of moving in their own direction. And I really hope that people that have franchises that they're familiar with or that they love, I don't know, looking at you, Earthbound crew, there are certain franchises that have kind of, that the creators and developers have kind of moved on from. I really hope that these franchises that have been sort of abandoned get the same treatment that Bloodstain has gotten in terms of the Igavanias. I, I've heard sort of rumors on the wind that Konami's trying to rehash the Castlevania series, but I don't really have any firm evidence of that now that it's late 2021. But I guess things we'll see. I, I, I Sorry, I guess we will see if that kind of comes to fruition. But um, that's Bloodstained, ladies and gentlemen. We have this great... 2D platformer in the vein of Castlevania Symphony of the Night and other Igavanias. And we have Curse of the Moon 1 and 2, which are largely representative and largely similar to Castlevania 3 way back in the day. So if you like those really difficult games, Curse of the Moon's definitely for you. I could speak for six more hours on how important this entire genre is to me. But um, I just want to. I'm not going to let him do that to you guys. So. That, that's that's probably it. He's he's putting like a he's got like the uh, the timer for like the Grammy acceptance speech. He's got it up on my screen. I've got so like I, a little uh, shepherd's hook, and I'm just pulling you off stage. Yeah, he's he's got he's got he's got to keep me in line. So we're going to conclude with that. Um, is it something that we're going to come back to if the series expands? Absolutely. I think both of us uh, really enjoyed these games. Um, Jeremy, if you haven't played Curse of the Moon, definitely look into it. Um, I plan to. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Uh, Ritual of the Night, excellent. You can get it for pretty cheap. It's on every system. It's on PS4, Xbox, Switch, PC. It's readily available to you. Even if you haven't played Castlevania games before or Metroidvania games before, it's just a really fun game to kind of jump into. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I again, I could talk for hours on this, but Jeremy, do you have any kind of concluding statements you'd want to bring up to the conversation? Um, I think it's just a, a really solid game if you haven't gotten into or back into some of those 2D platformers. Just speaking from experience, I haven't played them since I was a kid. I would say it's a really solid game to kind of get your foot back in there and see what it's all about. I honestly didn't really realize Metroidvania was a thing, and it's going to be... A thing that I'm going to be looking heavily into now because they kind of wrote me back in 
they're not just the basic platformers that you're used to with, you know, Super Mario, Donkey Kong, that sort of thing. They're a lot more in-depth and really, really enjoyable. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So we appreciate you guys coming along with this journey, uh, talking about Bloodstained. It's basically me just gushing about how much I love this genre. Uh, we appreciate you guys listening in. We apologize for sort of the the skip and delay between episodes, but you know, as you can imagine, when we're, when we're not getting paid for this, we have our own lives to live. So teaching and all of the other stuff that I'm getting up to is keeping me pretty busy, but still here, still happy to make these episodes. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you for spending the time, all of your precious time, listening to us talk about our favorite cradle of filth, hot topic, fan fiction. Have a good night. Jeremy, say goodbye for us. Hey, you guys have a great night. Bye-bye. Bye. this text bigger for my old ass eyes. Listen, got so too. <laughs> it's hard to speak Japanese times. Oh, very good, <laughs> yes, very good, yes. Send them to Detroit. <laughs> no, no, not, not Detroit. Detroit. <laughs> oh, shit, that was rough. Holding that bad boy in. Side spin off. <laughs> Hold on. This is a fun episode. Yeah. <laughs>